Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. I'm wondering what you're thinking about the risks are for a global recession because of where we are with Ukraine, because of where we are with the tightening of monetary policy, raising of interest rates, where we are with energy prices. It's important to note that in this context of Russia, we're not only talking about a spike of oil prices, but also natural gas and other commodities, metals, foods. Russia and Ukraine are significant exporters of all of these. And so what's unique about the shock that we're going through right now is that it's not localized to one commodity. You know, this is not an oil embargo. It is a shock across the whole commodity space. Mark Finley is the fellow in energy and global oil at Rice University's Baker Institute. He is the former senior U.S. economist at British Petroleum and a former CIA energy analyst. Mark joins me today to talk about the energy and economic implications of the Ukraine crisis. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Mark, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show. Michael, thank you for the invitation. Um, it's also Good to talk to you again, too. We uh, we worked very closely together at CIA, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to chat. I want to say one thing right up front, which is that we're taping this a week before it's going to air. So I just want to let everybody know that, you know, Ukraine is a 
fast-moving issue. The energy markets, as it relates to Ukraine, are a fast-moving issue. So I just want to give folks a heads up that something may happen that we may not cover in this podcast, and the reason is the taping date. So just everybody put that in the back of their mind. Mark, I want to get right into the meat of the issue, the impact of Ukraine on oil and gas markets, but I'd first love it if you could walk us through your career, just take a couple minutes to do that so that folks get a sense of who I'm talking to. I am currently the fellow in energy and global oil at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. My time at the Baker Institute follows um, a long career kind of at the intersections of energy, economics, and national security. Uh, I was a senior economist for BP in the United States for about 18 years, uh, where I directed the company's annual statistical review of world energy, as well as its long and short-term oil market analysis and transportation, including in the BP Energy Outlook. And prior to that, I had the privilege of working with you as an analyst and a manager at the CIA. And did you, Mark, did you come to the agency with a background in energy, or did you learn all of that at the agency? I did have a bit of background. I had a graduate degree in economics and kind of stumbled into a job working for an oil trading company. Uh, All I knew when I applied was that it was a company based in Bermuda. I did not have a specific energy background coming out of graduate school, um, but uh, got lucky to have that position. Uh, And then I got further uh, an additional piece of luck because at in the late 1980s, um, the uh, energy security uh, analytic group within uh, the agency said, huh, you know, there's a whole industry out there and we should try to reflect the expertise of that uh, industry's uh, value chain in our analysis. Uh, and so they had were in a process when I joined of hiring people with backgrounds in the energy sector, geologists, engineers, and I had unique ex- uh, experience as a working for an oil trading company uh, that they also wanted reflected you know, in the analysis that would serve policymakers in the U.S. government. Okay, Mark. So let me start by asking about the state of the oil and natural gas markets before Ukraine before the tensions started to build. So what's the base that we were coming off of here? The base that we were coming off, heading into the crisis, was that the world's energy complex, including oil and natural gas, was unusually tight. Uh, Prices were rising strongly even before Russia invaded Ukraine. And this is coming out of a very strong economic recovery after the COVID pandemic shutdowns. Um, In 2021, we saw the strongest growth in world oil demand ever recorded. At the same time, we also saw um, weak supply. Uh, Partly that was due to a lack of investment here in the United States, but most importantly, it was due to the biggest coordinated national oil supply cuts the world has ever seen implemented during the pandemic by the so-called OPEC plus group, which includes not just the traditional OPEC members like Saudi Arabia, but also included 10 other countries, including importantly, Russia. Uh, That group had cut production very sharply. And the result was that as demand recovered, inventories fell and prices rose. 2021 saw one of the biggest annual increases ever in world oil prices 
and also very large increases in natural gas, especially in Europe. And we'll come back to the differences between oil and gas as we talk. And and how important is Russia to both of those markets, or how important was Russia to both of those markets pre-Ukraine? What was their share of production? What was their share of global exports? Kind of walk us through their importance here. So Russia is actually the single biggest exporter of fossil fuels on the planet. They are the biggest exporter of natural gas. Uh, they are the second biggest exporter of oil and you know, as, and significant producers of both oil and natural gas, as well as a uh, producer and exporter of coal. One of the reasons why this is important is because Russia is big. The other reason is that energy is big. You know, energy is central to our way of life. Oil is by far the world's largest single source of energy. Uh, last year, the increase in oil prices drove the biggest single increase in gasoline retail prices in the United States ever. And I estimate that it cost just the increase, cost the average American family an extra $1,000. And uh, it accounted for 20% of all of the inflation in the entire U.S. economy last year. And that was, again, before Russia in invaded. A key difference, however, is that oil is a global marketplace. And so while the United States doesn't import a lot of oil from Russia, any potential disruption of Russian supplies would matter massively for U.S. prices because it's a global marketplace. That is different from natural gas. Natural gas is primarily a regional marketplace uh, and in the Russian context, important for Europe. You know, Russia by itself accounts for about a third of all of Europe's natural gas consumption. Uh, and the connections between the U.S. and regional markets for natural gas in Europe and elsewhere are pretty tenuous. And so prices for natural gas in Europe uh, since the crisis broke have been trading at the equivalent of two or three hundred dollars a barrel. While here in the United States, natural gas prices have been trading at the equivalent of about thirty dollars a barrel. Uh, so much, you know, a big disconnect between them for natural gas, whereas for oil prices, which are currently around $100 a barrel, have been going up for everyone all over the world. And give us give us a really quick sense of, of, of where Russia's oil exports go and where their gas exports go. The um, biggest market for Russia for both oil and natural gas is Europe. About half of Russia's exports of oil go to Europe and an even bigger share of its natural gas exports. By the way, Russia recognizes that vulnerability as well, and it has been trying to diversify its exports in recent decades, opening up a new oil pipeline to China, opening up a pipeline to export to Asian markets, and building capacity to export natural gas by liquefied natural gas tankers rather than pipelines to Europe. It's also important to recognize that when we talk about oil, it's not just crude oil. Russia is the second biggest exporter of crude oil in the world after Saudi Arabia, but it's also importantly the second biggest exporter of refined products in the world after, believe it or not, the United States. And that matters because we've seen not only sharp increases of crude oil, but also very sharp increases in prices of diesel fuel, for example, for which Russia is a significant export market for Europe. So Mark, I'm going to ask you a question about the the two markets you talked about, oil and gas, and how different they are. Does liquefied natural gas change that difference? Does liquefied natural gas make gas more like oil, more like a world market or not? 
So liquefied natural gas is an important development and the trade globally of liquefied natural gas has been growing in recent years. And that is going to make it more like a global marketplace. I mean, the difference between a pipeline and a tanker is flexibility. You know, natural gas flowing in a pipeline from Russia to Europe can't go anywhere else. Whereas a tanker can literally stop in the middle of the ocean and turn around and go somewhere else. But it's not all the way there yet. Uh, so, And the reason is here in the United States, which has become one of the biggest exporters of natural gas in the world following Russia, due to the shale revolution, all of the terminals that have, can produce liquefied natural gas for export in the United States are more or less running flat out. And that is the key disconnect that prevents natural gas from being a global marketplace like oil is just the limited connectivity and the constraints that we see in the system. Okay, great. So, so, so that's, that's the base of where we were. What's happened since the buildup intentions? What's happened since the invasion to the oil and gas markets? So since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, it's been very interesting. We've seen unexpectedly strong financial sanctions by the U.S., Europe, and its allies on Russia, but a deliberate effort not to interfere with flows uh, of Russian energy exports. Both President Biden and President Putin and, Rus and European leaders have all been very clear that they don't want to uh, target, at least so far, Russia's energy sector. And the reason is because, A, uh, Europe in particular is very exposed and vulnerable to a disruption of, of Russian supplies. But even here in the United States, uh, consumers are already feeling the pinch and changes in gasoline prices correlate very strongly with things like consumer sentiment and the president's job approval rating. And so President Biden has been very clear that he, at least so far, that they don't want American consumers to feel the pain of any policy measures that are taken. So the U.S. and the U.K., though, right, have both stopped importing Russian gas. That's, that is one change, correct? Correct. Uh, so President Biden, under pressure, changed um, his stated policy to institute a ban on purchases of Russian crude oil into the United States. The United Kingdom and Canada have also announced such measures, but those aren't the main markets and it doesn't really stop Russia from supplying because those cargoes can go elsewhere. But there's another wrinkle here, which is that even without official sanctions targeting the Russian energy sector, companies have become reluctant to purchase Russian oil in particular due to the reputational damage, as well as the risk that they might wind up holding a cargo of Russian oil in a rapidly moving situation where sanctions could you know, at some point be put back on the table. And so a few weeks ago, there were reports that Russia was having trouble selling up to a, a half of its total oil exports because its buyers were becoming reluctant. Here's where the global market comes into place. There's 100 million barrels of oil that gets traded and a similar volume of uh, refined products that the oil is made into. And if Russia's established buyers uh, become nervous, all Russia has, Russian marketers go through their Rolodex and find someone else to sell it to. There have been reports that trading houses and uh, countries like India and China have been increasing their purchases of Russian oil, albeit at you know, be able to extract large discounts 
you know, in the process because of the additional uh, risks and difficulties. So when you look at when you look at how much Russia is exporting today, particularly oil, is it much different than it was before the crisis? A couple of weeks ago, the market was in a panic because of reports that Russian oil exports were having trouble finding new homes. And about a week later, all it took was a week before the buzz kind of went around trading circles saying, never mind, they're finding new buyers, you know, even if they have to discount it by $30 a barrel, you know, the, the, barrel, the physical barrels are still making their way into the marketplace. Mark, how big a discount are the Chinese and Indians getting? The rumors in the in the recent uh, trade press are that uh, we're hearing that Russian cargos are being discounted as much as $30 a barrel. But again, with prices at $100 a barrel, that's still giving Russia uh, income that is more than they uh, need to balance their budget. And when you factor in the discounted prices, what's happened to oil prices overall in the world as a result of the Ukraine crisis? So the global benchmarks have been exceptionally volatile. When I say global benchmarks, uh, I should qualify that or clarify. Crude oil is not a single homogenous product. You know, there are significant differences in quality of crude oil that gets produced in the United States, in Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And so every barrel has its own price. But, you know, to facilitate transactions at a global scale, most oil is priced based on a reference barrel here in the United States, the West Texas Intermediate. Globally, it's the UK North Sea production uh, crude oil called Brent. WTI and Brent prices have been exceptionally volatile. You know, before Russia invaded, they were about $100 a barrel. Early in the crisis, they rose as high as 130 back down, you know, below uh, 100. And, you know, even in just the last week, have gone back up to 120 and back down to 100. The general concept is, you know, that there's still tremendous uncertainty. And that's what's driving this volatility is the daily news flow. But $100 a barrel is a pretty high price in the historical context. It's not remotely the highest. You know, we saw prices getting as high as $150 a barrel, uh, on the eve of the uh, financial crisis in the middle 2000s. And moreover, we have to adjust that for inflation. But it's still a, a significant increase, and it matters for prices at the pump directly. In fact, you can almost perfectly predict the annual change in U.S. retail gasoline prices by doing nothing other than looking at the annual change in crude oil prices. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Mark Finley. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, Mark, so so what would be the impact of either Western sanctions on Russian exports of oil and gas, or what would be the impact if Putin made the decision to pull those products from the market? Mm-hmm. 
if I could predict the price of oil, as we used to joke at BP, <laughs> I'd be laying on a beach somewhere. So, um, uh, so uh, I think here's the factors I would think about when I tried to think about how to approach analyzing a question like that. First is, what's the form of the sanctions? Is it something like the U.S. has already done saying, well, we're not going to buy your oil, which means it can go someplace else? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to be an Iran JCPOA type of sanction that says any transaction that clears through the U.S. financial system uh, that involves buying Iranian oil is going to be subject to sanctions? And since the entire world's financial system clears through the U.S., you know that has effectively bottled up a significant share of Iranian exports. And there's you know lots of stops in between those two extremes. Europe, for example, has announced its uh, aspiration to reduce its purchases of Russian natural gas by as much as eighty percent this year. How they can do that, you know, we could talk about. But you know, all of these. So the form of sanctions matters. That's one factor. The other is what's the underlying state of the marketplace. Uh, we've already talked about how that's very tight. Inventories are low, uh, so the ability to cope by uh, with a disruption by drawing on commercial inventories is pretty constrained. Another classic coping mechanism in the oil market is spare production capacity in countries, yeah. for example, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But given you know strained relationships between the U.S. and those countries, you know we've seen that they have so far resisted entreaties from the U.S. and other oil consumers to accelerate their planned production increases. So how much spare capacity is there um, in, in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates? So the U.S. Energy Information Administration estimates that there's maybe 4 million barrels a day of spare production capacity in the world. The vast majority of that is in Middle East producers, most, most especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Saudi Arabia is the only country ever that I'm aware of that has invested in building capacity with the intention of not using it. They've always, for many decades, had a policy of maintaining a buffer of spare production capacity for use in an emergency. Now, again, the question, the separate question is, will they be willing to use it? And, you know, there is an OPEC plus meeting on March 31st. So by the time your listeners hear this broadcast, we'll have at least some indication of whether they're willing to open the taps to help consumers or whether they're sticking with their original plans. So the other potential source of oil here is Iran. Should there be you know, a new Iran nuclear deal, Iran could start exporting oil again. How much, how much would Iran be exporting if, it, if that could start happening? Right. If their facilities have been properly maintained, which uh, you know, the Iranian government says is the case, um, you know, their uh, production now compared to what it was pre-sanctions suggests that they could increase production by somewhere perhaps a bit more than 1 million barrels per day. There's also a possibility that Venezuela could increase production a bit, you know, because the United States is also engaged in conversations for sanctions relief uh, with, with that country. Although most people think that there, the facilities have not been well maintained. There's lots of reports of, you know, scavenge and, and cannibalization of parts due to underinvestment. Uh, and so the prospect for Venezuela to increase production looks to be pretty constrained. The other option for consuming countries is using strategic oil stockpiles. The United States, Europe, Japan, China, and India hold more than one and a half billion barrels of government-owned strategic stocks for use in an emergency. 
and members of the International Energy Agency have already announced plans to release 60 million barrels of oil into the market from their strategic stockpiles, half of which comes from the U.S. stockpile. But if you take if you take those stockpiles and you think about a, a drawdown of them, how much oil could that put on the market on a on a daily basis? Great question. Um, the U.S. Energy Department says that it could, by itself, release up to a bit over four million barrels a day, temporarily for about three months, and then the individual storage terminals in the U.S. Gulf Coast start to go dry. Also, it's important to note that that system has never been tested. There are some analysts who who doubt that the United States could release that much oil in a crisis. Other countries um, don't don't have uh, official profiles that we can tap into. Um, but in total, in theory, you know, the spare capacity of uh, you know producers like Saudi Arabia plus strategic stocks in places like the United States and other oil-consuming countries could, in theory, completely offset a, a full disruption of Russian oil supplies temporarily. But the system has never been tested. So, Mark, at the end of the day, if the Russian oil comes off the market in, a, in an Iran way, right, with secondary sanctions, you're talking about significant price pressures. Absolutely. Most likely. Uh, there's, prices would certainly skyrocket if, you know, in the event of a full disruption of Russian supplies, even with strategic stocks and even with spare production capacity. And you know, sharply higher oil prices ha- historically have a real strong correlation with causing recessions. And by the way, that's the good scenario uh, in, a, in a worst case disruption. You know, the world has had 50 years to practice oil supply security, and there is strategic stockpiles and spare capacity. Other forms of energy don't even have that amount of strategic planning and backup. So, for example, natural gas exports don't have the benefit of strategic buffers of spare capacity and strategic stockpiles. And so the price pressures there could be even more significant. And that's where I wanted to go next, right, to the gas market. Should should that get disrupted, there's not a lot of room to maneuver, correct? Um, especially for Europe. That is correct. And when I say gas, of course, I mean natural gas, not gasoline for a U.S. audience. Europe, as I mentioned earlier, the price of natural gas in Europe has been many multiples of the energy equivalent price of oil. And that's different from the rest of the world, uh, or different from the United States, rather, you know, because it's re- relatively disconnected. And so Europe in particular you know, is vulnerable to natural gas uh, disruptions from Russia. And while for oil, the implications are global but diffused, for natural gas, they're concentrated and localized. I mentioned earlier, you know, the possibility of Putin taking the oil and natural gas off the market himself. And I just want to ask you, how important are oil and natural gas to the Russian economy and how would that affect his thought process, right? You know, what's interesting is that Putin himself has was writing papers 25 years ago about how to use Russian exports of energy and other commodities to restore Russia's lost greatness. So this is not a new concept for him. Oil by itself accounts for about half of all of the export revenues earned by Russia. It also accounts for about 40% of federal government revenues in Russia. 
natural gas historically uh, has played a smaller but significant role. And so there have been, there is significant vulnerability on you know, the side of Russia as well. Russia has been trying to diversify its markets, you know, trying to build capacity to export oil to markets other than Europe and to do the same with natural gas because it recognizes that while Europe is heavily dependent on Russia, Russia is also heavily dependent on sales to Europe. But the bottom line, right, is if he loses that revenue, um, the Russian economy is in deep trouble. Deeper than it already is given the financial sanctions. There is another wrinkle here, Michael, which is that Russia has control over not only its own exports, uh, production of oil from Kazakhstan, for example, flows to markets via a pipeline that transits Russian territory. And just last week, Mm. there was a mysterious weather-related accident that damaged that export facility, bottling up as much as 1 million barrels a day of Kazakh oil production. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, Mark, so, so in addition to being an energy analyst, you're also the chief economist for BP in the United States. And given that, I'm wondering what you're thinking about the risks are for a global recession, right? Including a recession here in the United States because of where we are with Ukraine, because of where we are with the tightening of monetary policy, raising of interest rates, where we are with energy prices. You know, what's your sense as an economist of the risks we're facing here going forward? Oof. Well, I would just add an energy price shock to a list of other factors. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, raising interest rate rates, the withdrawal of COVID-related stimulus spending. It's important to note that in this context of Russia, we're not only talking about a spike of oil prices, but also natural gas and other commodities, metals, foods. Um, right. you know, Russia and Ukraine are significant exporters of all of these. And so what's unique about the shock that we're going through right now is that it's not localized to one commodity. You know, this is not an oil embargo. It is a shock across the whole commodity space. Now, it is true that oil prices adjusted for inflation are a lot less than historical peaks. 
It's also true that the U.S. and world economies have gotten significantly more efficient with the way they use energy as an input over time. And so the role of oil is a lot less in uh, the U.S. economy than it used to be. But it is still a significant cost. As I mentioned earlier, just the one-year increase of gasoline prices alone last year cost the average American family an extra $1,000. On top of that, it is the only commodity that is screamed at you from every street corner in foot-high letters. And so it has an outsized role in, in undercutting consumer confidence and business confidence when we see a price spike. Um, Mark, let me ask you about U.S. policy, U.S. energy policy. Um, how do you think the Biden administration has done so far on energy policy as it relates to the Ukraine crisis? I think the most important thing to recognize, Michael, is that there's not a lot that any U.S. administration can do to impact U.S. oil production. You know, this is a private sector gig that, you know, is where investment decisions are made primarily, well, exclusively by private companies or corporations. You know, they're, they're obviously U.S. policy matters at the margins. So the administration has kind of, I think, recognized that having a robust domestic oil and gas industry today is not inconsistent with its longer term objectives of having a more aggressive climate policy. You know, the reality is we need to do both those things. You know, that oil and gas play a leading role that here in the United States, they're more than half of total energy used today. So as much as we all want to transition to a lower carbon energy future, the reality is what gets the kids to school and what heats our homes and cools our homes and cooks our food and runs our businesses is predominantly fossil energy today. And so I'm personally, I think, guardedly optimistic that the administration has recognized the centrality of oil and gas into our economic and strategic well-being today, while at the same time trying to accelerate a transition to lower carbon future. So, Mark, one thing we didn't talk about, and, and, and what you just said, you know, raised it in my mind, was was the degree to which there's excess capacity here in terms of oil production. Is there? There's not really any spare production capacity. No U.S. company, no, 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 no for-profit business can afford the luxury of withholding oil from the marketplace. So here in the U.S., growth needs to come from new investment. And what's interesting is, you know, the Dallas Fed recently released a survey of U.S. oil and gas producers and asked them, what's the single biggest thing holding you back from investing more given these high oil prices? The single biggest answer by far was not government policy. It was our investors are reluctant to allow us to invest more. Ten times as many companies said that than said government policy. Why? Uh, because for 10 years prior to COVID, the U.S. shale industry didn't return, didn't make money. It was focused on breakneck growth. And after a decade of breakneck growth, but not making any money, when prices collapsed during the pandemic, investors walked away and said, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore. You know, now what the investors have been telling them is, you, you know, we want you to focus on cash, generating cash returns and making money, not on growing your business. And what's interesting is that now we have the administration here in the U.S. actually reaching out not only to oil and gas companies saying, hey, we want you guys to invest more. They're also reaching out to their investors and saying the same thing. 
Fascinating. So, Mark, I want to take take us a bit into the future here um, to to close out our conversation. And I'm wondering to what extent you think that what is happening in Ukraine and the energy market consequences of it will fundamentally change energy markets going forward? Or is this just going to be a, you know, a series of short-term changes and we'll eventually come back to where we, to where we started? And I guess a big question there, right, is, is Europe going to actually move forward and reduce its dependence or not? How do you think about the possibility of long-term change here as a result of this? Mm-hmm. I think it has the potential to do that in, in, a, in, in a couple ways, uh, but I think there's also some limitations to it. So I certainly see renewed interest in Europe in trying to diversify its energy sources away from Russia. You know, we've seen the German government, for example, say yes, you know, where they have previously said, oh, we don't need natural gas storage because we're going to do climate change and we can buy from Russia. They're reliable and we don't need coal. Now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) we're going to turn back on those nuclear power plants we had planned to close due to environmental opposition. We're going to start building natural gas storage. We're going to build capacity to import liquefied natural gas from places like the United States. We're even going to start building stockpiles of coal again uh, because we recognize that all of that runs our economy today and the urgency of trying to do all of that and have a functioning economic system today, you know, overrides, I guess, balances perhaps is maybe a better word, counterweight to some of the previous uh, focus. At that said, it's, I think, also clearly has the opportunity to accelerate the move to a lower carbon future, to build up renewable energy, for example, both from a policy push, plus from the simple economics that higher prices of fossil mm-hmm. fuels make the competition more competitive. It also should note that the United States, just last week, President Biden was in Europe and you know signed an agreement to try to get more liquefied natural gas into Europe on the short term. And also that European leaders committed to significantly increasing their purchases of U.S. liquefied natural gas, you know, between, you know, over the next uh, decade or so. So you noted earlier the heavy dependence that the world still has on carbon. And I'm wondering if we step back from Ukraine and if we look at our sources of energy and then we look out 10 years or 25 years, how different do you think the sources will be? Will we still be dependent um, on on carbon in 10 years? Will we still be dependent on carbon in 25 years? What do you think? So I think that the main thing to emphasize when we think about the long distance future is the massive uncertainty. You know, will the world, the world is currently not on a trajectory to meet the net zero uh, aspirations that were laid out at the Glasgow Summit. That needs significantly you know, more policy and technology. For example, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says most of the technologies needed to get us to a net zero future don't exist on a commercial scale yet. So there's tremendous uncertainty. And so as always in economics, the answer is it depends. You know, Does this crisis cause countries to double down on their investments of fossil energy? Does it cause countries to double down on their commitment to a rapid transition? Does it do both? How do those things net out? Those are all great questions that, you know, 
I and, and many other analysts will be looking at very closely to kind of try to read the tea leaves to see which way these, these uh, scenarios break. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating conversation on a, on a critically important issue. Thank you for taking the time. It's my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for the invitation. That was Mark Finley. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.